You know, as I mentioned last night, if, if you were around, in my early 20s, I was working in Tokyo for the Sony Corporation, and I was what they called a 7-Eleven man. Have you heard that expression, or might you be able to guess what that refers to? A 7-Eleven man is someone whose work day goes from 7 in the morning till about 11 at night. And so things were, were pretty crazy and, and busy you know, during that season of my life. And every once in a while, someone from the company would approach me and say that they had just worked two or three days straight without sleeping. And so I just wondered, you know, how is that even possible? And they would tell me that they took an energy drink. Do you know what an energy drink is? Some of you have been to Japan. There are these drinks that are contained in these small bottles. They're packed with caffeine and all kinds of nutrients. Think Red Bull squared. And uh, apparently when you, I've never taken one of these myself, at least not the high, you know, the high voltage ones. You can work for you know, two, three, even four days straight without sleeping. Now, Japanese people are apparently so sleep deprived that they fantasize about sleep in the same way that hostages fantasize about food. Now, you may say to me, well, I'm not that busy. But I'm sure that you've, you've said to yourself, I am really busy. I wish I had more time. Or maybe you felt consumed by some relationship or family matter, a financial stress or something here at school or at work. And I think that many of us long for deep rest, not only in our bodies, but in our souls as well. You know, God designed us to work for six days at the very maximum and then rest for one. And when we violate that rhythm, we damage ourselves and we deprive those we love. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, wrote that the most pervasive form of violence in our modern world is busyness. It's not drugs or guns, but it is busyness. And Merton was writing before the age of, of the internet. The Chinese character for busy, as you may know, combines the pictographs for heart and death, suggesting that busyness involves the death of our hearts. So if we violate God's intended rhythm of rest, we, we damage ourselves and deprive those we love. But if we honor God's rhythm of rest, we actually flourish. Do you know where people, according to a National Geographic-sponsored study, are, are living longer in the world than anywhere else? Can, can you guess? They identified three places where, where people are living to age 100 and beyond uh, more than anywhere else. Okinawa, Japan, that's one place, yeah, where uh, people never really retire. They, they keep working in the fields, raising rice, fishing, and uh, they're actually born into small groups in addition to their own family, so they're always uh, living in community, and that, that fosters health. Uh, someone from National Geographic interviewed this, this elderly woman in Okinawa who is holding her great-great-granddaughter. She's like 107 years old, and the, the interviewer couldn't resist, and so he, he said, so what does it feel like to be holding your great-great-granddaughter in your arms? And she said, it feels like I'm leaping into heaven. Any, any other guesses? 
So yeah, Okinawa, Japan is one. Yes, a, a, a small town in, in uh, Italy called Sardinia. It's, it's uh, on this elevated plain, apparently, and they have wine with really high levels of antioxidants. Mm -hmm. And apparently men that are 100 plus are challenging the younger men to arm wrestles, you know. <laughs> so, so they're very bright there as well. So there's one, one final place. So you've got two. Uh, the third one may not be quite as obvious. I can give you a hint. It's somewhere in North America. Any guesses? Alaska, it's a good guess, but it's not Alaska. It's somewhere in Southern California, which is an even you know, less intuitive kind of thing. It's a place called Loma Linda. And the researchers discovered that on average, people were living 10 years longer than pretty much anyone else in North America. Uh, this is based on a 30-year study with 70,000 people, uh, lots of racial diversity. And as they probed a little further, they discovered that the reason people are living longer in Loma Linda, though it's in Southern California with all the smog and the traffic and the pollution, is because there is a high concentration of people who are Seventh-day Adventist. And they keep the Sabbath religiously and they, they also uh, you know, lead you know, wholesome uh, lifestyles, which, which also helps. Do we have the slide for that by chance? Okay, so here we go. So women are living on average nine years longer in Loma Linda than elsewhere in North America, and men on the average 11 years longer. And if you wonder why can men add a little bit more time to their lives to practices like Sabbath, it's because women are naturally better at taking care of themselves and they're just more healthy in general. So we men just have more remedial catch-up to do. So Adventists honor the Sabbath and they flourish. Monks also honor the Sabbath and flourish. Now, you may think of monks as leading these really idyllic kinds of lifestyles, but monks are actually pretty busy doing things like making fine beer and wine and world-class cheeses and chocolates, uh, writing books in some cases, keeping you know, the grounds and, and the buildings of the monastery intact. But monks have something that call them to stop. They have a bell in the monastery. And St. Benedict in the sixth century told his monks, when you hear the bell, go off in the monastery, stop what you're doing, don't dot your I and cross your T, but move on to the next thing. Monks believe that there is a time and a place for everything, that we shouldn't give too much or too little time to a given activity in our lives. And so for monks, there's a time to sleep, uh, there's a time to pray, there's a time to eat, there's a time to study, there's a time to work outside in the fields, uh, there's a time to play and rest, and a time to sleep again. Now, you and I don't have a literal bell in our lives for the most part, if we're not, you know, living in a cloister. But we do have a bell. And that bell is called the Sabbath. And in the scriptures, we are called to honor the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, God says, 
Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, let's, let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would enable us by the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit to trust you enough to acknowledge that you are God and that we are not, and in so doing, help us to rest. And we also once again lift up Nikhil to you as he is not feeling well. Uh, we pray that you would enable him to rest in his body, but also in his spirit, knowing that you are the one that carries him and his world. And so we commit him and we commit ourselves to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Steve mentioned uh, just a few moments ago that, that I've written a book called uh, God in My Everything, How an Ancient Rhythm Helps Busy People Enjoy God. And the central image of the book is, is a trellis. So uh, Peter Mills, I, I think you're familiar with this. And you, you know what a trellis is? Have you been to a vineyard in the Niagara region of Ontario or the Okanagan of BC or maybe the Napa Valley of California? If you've been to a vineyard, you know that a trellis is simply a structure that supports a grapevine, enabling it to receive more sunlight, enabling it to be pruned and simplified so that it bears better fruit and therefore creates better wine. And so the monks contend that we can have a rhythm of life that acts like a trellis in a grapevine, on, uh, under a grapevine that supports our life with God so that our lives can be simplified, so that we can experience more of the sunlight of Jesus Christ and therefore bear more of the fruit of Jesus's love, joy, and peace in our lives. And so one of the most important aspects of, of the trellis uh, that I write about in the book is, is the Sabbath. And uh, some of you were asking yesterday, there are copies of the book available in the bookstore. And as, I was sincere when I mentioned last night that if you'd like a copy and um, money's tight and that's the only barrier, I'm glad to buy a copy for you. You've got a credit card uh, here somewhere. So, um, but the, uh, the, the Sabbath, as you can see on the bottom, I think there's a graphic for it, on the uh, bottom left is one of the foundational elements of this rhythm of life that the monks talk about, this way of life that supports our life with God. Wayne Muller says, we stop because it's time to stop. If we stop only when we have answered all of our emails and completed all of our projects, we'll, we'll never stop because our email box is never really empty. Uh, I mean, think about it. Even when you're dead, email will still be coming into your inbox in all likelihood, right? And our projects are never done. 
So Mahler says we stop not because our work is finished, our work will never be finished, at least in, from our perspective. Uh, we stop because it's time to stop, because Sabbath calls us to stop. Now that sounds really simple, right? But when was the last time you took 24 hours off and completely unplugged from all of your work and work-related texts and emails and electronic gadgets? I mean, it sounds simple, but it's not so simple to put into practice. So why is it so hard for people to actually honor a 24-hour Sabbath? I think part of the reason is because at a conscious or subconscious level, we feel like we need to be successful. And if you're ambitious, you feel like you need to do a lot of things in order to be successful. It's not all necessarily bad, as we reflected on at this conference. And a lot of us at a subconscious or conscious level feel like it's important that we are liked by other people. And if you feel like you need to be liked, you, you need to be making a lot of connections with people either in person or online, through social media. And so if you feel like you need to be successful or popular, you're going to be busy, busy, busy. You know, last night if you were here, I'll just uh, reshare this story. You know, one of the most moving conversations I, I, I've had uh, was with a friend who had this kind of prophetic word for me. And uh, he said, Ken, I think God wants to say something to you. I, I perked up, listened, and he said, for a long time, you have felt like you've needed to be the guy. When you were younger, the guy in the sports field. When you were a young man, the guy in the business world. And now you feel like you need to be the guy, the guy in quotation marks, as a pastor. Here's what God is saying to you. You don't need to be the guy you just need to be the sun. And I just felt this weight <sighs> lifting from my shoulders. And I just got emotional because I just felt so free. And God is saying to some of you, you don't need to be the guy, you just need to be the sun. You don't need to be the girl, you just need to be the daughter. Any of you have pets? Okay, so dog, cat, or... Chihuahua, okay. Okay. Seth? Cat. Cat, okay. You know, we've got a pet as well. We've got a, um, if you're curious to see a picture of our family, um, we've got a golden retriever. It's our prayer card. You're welcome to look at it uh, later, the card. Uh, and um, if you're ever in Vancouver, you're welcome to come walk her. She's super friendly. Mm -hmm. Sasha, uh, she's um, five years old now. And, you know, if you were to break into our house, uh, she would just roll over on her back and expect you to rub her belly. She's not much of a guard dog. She adds no security factor to our house. But we don't love her because of the utility she provides, um, the security that she provides for our house, which is zero. We love our golden simply because she's alive and breathing. And we've got a son who's eight years old. His name is Joey. He's not very productive. He's not a good student. He's in grade three. He likes to play, doesn't like to clean up, makes zero money. But we love him because he's just alive, he, because he is. Some of you are parents, some of you are grandparents. You know how you regard your younger children. You just love them because they are. Just happened to serendipitously run into three of Lane's. You have three kids? Okay. Today in the stroller and one walk-in and, and, you know, God doesn't love you because of your production capacity or because of your potential. He loves you simply because you are breathing, because you are alive. 
And when you really realize that, you don't have to try so anxiously to stamp existence on the ghost of your existence. You can strive to do your best for God and others, not out of a need to create your own life and validate yourself, but because you are validated by your Maker. And Sabbath reminds us that we are valued and loved before we ever do anything. You know, when I finished uh, writing uh, this book, uh, a journalist wrote to me, very well-meaning, and said, congratulations, you now deserve your Sabbath. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, Sue, so she's laughing up front here. Uh, the fact is, she meant really well but none of us deserve the Sabbath. It's just simply given to us as, as a gift, whether you're a student or working or a ministry or homemaker. It's just pure gift. Think about how you began your existence. You, know, you began your existence at rest in your mother's womb. No matter how ambitious your mom or dad may have been, it wasn't like you were you know, reviewing French flashcards or Mandarin flashcards <laughs> when you were in utero. Uh, it wasn't like you were practicing piano scales in your mom's womb, right? You were just in a state of rest. And from a Hebrew perspective, when do we begin the day? We begin it not in the morning. That's our Western perspective. If I asked you, when do you begin your day? You'd probably say in the morning, after I've had a cup of coffee, after I've had a shower. But from a Hebrew perspective, the day begins in the evening. And so it begins with, with rest. You, you begin your day at rest from a Hebrew perspective, and you go to sleep at night. And if you're at our house right now, you wake up, and you would go into our backyard perhaps and see God at work. There are these little shoots coming out of our fig tree, uh, just about this long right now, little nubs of figs. God has been at work. Or there's a new spider web on our, on our wooden back fence. While we are sleeping, God is at work. God gave Adam his greatest gift while he was sleeping from his rib, Eve. God gave Solomon, some of your students, his legendary wisdom while he was sleeping. God gave Joseph and Mary their most important message, arguably one of the most important messages, while they were asleep through a dream. And so we begin our days at rest, and even while we are resting, God is at work. And God calls us, and it requires some faith here in response, for us to begin our week at rest. So there's a respected Christian leader who was speaking to a group of young professionals in New York City, and he was presenting Sabbath as a kind of circuit breaker on our selfish ambition, because Sabbath calls us to stop what we're doing once a week, uh, activities that bring us a sense of significance and worth. And after uh, this uh, Christian leader was done with the presentation, a young woman approached him and said, I am a junior partner at one of the top law firms here in, in the city, and I'm called to this work, but with the workload that I have, it would be impossible for me to actually take a Sabbath once a week. And so this person I know responded by saying, well, you know, that's the 
storyline you're telling yourself, but is it really true? And he could just tell by her body language and her, her countenance that she was feeling very tense and frustrated by what he was saying, and then she, she walked away. A few moments later, another young woman approaches uh, this, this per- person who had been teaching on Sabbath, and she introduced herself and said, um, I work at the same law firm as the person you were just talking to. I'm also a junior partner. But I feel that everything in my career has been gift, just sheer grace. And if everything is gift anyway, I'm going to rest once a week. I'm going to take a Sabbath. And uh, my friend uh, later reflected that, you know, both of them may end up at the same point one day. Maybe they both make partner. And ironically, he found out later that the woman taking the Sabbath, though they have roughly the same abilities, is advancing just a little bit more quickly, just ironically, not that that means that much one way or another. But once they get there, they're going to be inhabiting their world in very different ways, and their lives will bear very different kinds of fruit. Because if you strive for and then grab your goal in your career or whatever sphere of life you're thinking about through idolatry. It's not like you can just switch that off. You'll be enslaved after you attain partner or whatever partner represents to you. But if you move toward your goal, doing your best, but receiving it as a gift from God, you'll hold it much more loosely. You may be in the same position in terms of your title, but you're going to be bearing a very different kind of fruit in your life. Now, some of you are, are, are students at, at Wycliffe. I, I don't know what happened to me when I was in seminary, uh, just north of Boston, but somewhere along the way, partway through, I felt convicted of the need to take a 24-hour Sabbath, not so much as a way to rest, but as a way to trust God. I was an ambitious student. I wanted to keep the doors open to get into a top-flight PhD program. I wanted to get good grades and so forth. But I felt God calling me to trust him enough to take a 24-hour Sabbath and not study, you know, once a week. And so because I had Hebrew exams sometimes Monday morning or Greek exams, and I'm really bad at languages, I decided to take my 24-hour Sabbath from Saturday dinner to Sunday dinner. And if I needed to review Sunday night, uh, I, I, I could do that. Um, and there were times when I was really tempted. Big exam on Monday morning just to break the Sabbath and study. But that practice taught me to trust him because, as you know, some of you are in in Christian ministry or other kinds of work. Not only when you are a student, but when you are working, if you honor the Sabbath, that requires the capacity to trust God. It requires some faith and courage. And so a couple of years ago, I'm invited, I know this is the Anglican College, um, to speak at the Pentecostal National Assembly, like to a thousand Canadian uh, Pentecostal pastors that were gathered in in, um, Saskatoon. And uh, I'm not a very detail-oriented person, as Lane knows, because I forgot my key to the principal's lodge, and he he helped me get in, or else I would have been up here in my sweatpants, you know. Um, And I didn't read the letter of invitation very carefully. I thought I was just scheduled to give one keynote address at the assembly when I was supposed to give two talks, and the other talk required brand new preparation because it was a new topic. And, and the, I looked at my calendar, it was just a few days away, and I realized the only day I had to prepare was on my Sabbath day. But I felt God calling me to trust him and just to not prepare. 
And, you know, I, I don't know, if you snuck in as a Pentecostal, I know most of you are probably Anglican, but if you're a Pentecostal here, you're thinking, you know, how is that a problem? Because if you're Pentecostal, you just stand up and let the Spirit fall on you and you thunder out an oracle. Well, I'm not that anointed. <laughs> I actually have to prepare. Uh, but on that day, I, when I just scratched out an outline, it was kind of simple, and got up and, you know, God was present. It, 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 the reception was just, just fine. And, and God is calling us to live not just by the sweat of our brow, but by the grace of manna that falls all around us. Not just by the sweat of our brow. And we're called to work hard, believe me. I'm Japanese, so I, I really believe that. But not just by the sweat of our brow, but by the grace of manna that falls all around us. And so very practically, what might a Sabbath day look like for us? Eugene Peterson, the Presbyterian pastor and teacher, has said, Sabbath is a day to pray and play. Pray as in worship, play as in do, do something that you just love to do for its own sake. Mark Buchanan is a, a friend of mine. He's a Canadian pastor who's now teaching at a seminary in Calgary. In his wonderful book, The Rest of God, Mark writes, the golden rule for Sabbath is to cease from what is necessary and to embrace what gives life. Cease from what is necessary and to embrace what gives life. He says, Sabbath is a reprieve from doing what you ought to do, even though the list of oughts is infinitely long and never done. Sabbath is the day you trade places with them. You go, they go into the salt mine and you go out dancing. You get to willfully ignore the many niggling things your existence genuinely depends on and is often hobbled beneath so that you can turn to whatever you've put off and pushed away for lack of time, lack of room, lack of breath. You get to shuck the have-tos and lay hold of the get-tos. So Sabbath is a day where you shuck the have-tos and lay hold of the get-tos. And so for me, part of my Sabbath day includes, at this time of year at least, running through the wooded endowment land trails near the University of British Columbia with our golden retriever. I love being outside. I also love being on the water. I love to kayak. I don't have a sailboat, but I have a friend who does, and he was sending me pictures this weekend of getting the boat ready for sailing. Love to sail as well. What do you do that makes you really come alive? Uh, maybe you love music or art or an inspiring film or a captivating novel. Or um, maybe you enjoy spending time with someone really special in your life. Or maybe it's food. There's, there's some food that you really love. When I mentioned this in, in, in the Philippines, people got real happy. You know, they, they were really into food there. <laughs> but whatever it is that makes you come alive over time, is a spiritual practice. And Parker Palmer, the great Quaker elder, uh, once said, self-care is never a selfish act. It is the stewardship of the only gift you have to offer the world.
And so if you're um, a person who maybe hasn't played for a long time and, and you want to get some ideas as to how you can discover your language of play, there's, this is, I, I think, unusual for a book on spiritual practices. There is a chapter here uh, called Play Like a Child, and uh, it, it, there's a process by which you can maybe discover uh, the kind of play that would really make you come alive. But so we're called to play on the Sabbath. We're also called to pray, to worship. Because play, while it is life-giving, if all we do is play, obviously, maybe it's not so obvious, we won't experience the, the deepest possible soul rest that, that we actually need. Uh, have you ever been on vacation, maybe the first day, where you're relaxing on a weekend, the sun is finally getting a little warmer here in Toronto, and you're out by a pool, maybe a friend's pool, or maybe you're, you know, on vacation, and you're, you're really trying to relax, you know, just by the poolside, the sun is streaming down on you, and after about six or seven minutes, you're thinking about all the things you ought to be doing, you know, I ought to be working on my thesis or something, you know, I ought to be, you know, responding to these emails, and you just start to feel like you're such a lazy bum, you know, there's, that, there's this niggling voice uh, in the back of your mind that you're not doing enough. Well, in order for us to experience a deep level of soul rest, we, we need worship. We need to understand that our lives aren't being carried just by us, but by the hands of God. And so I have a colleague named Catherine who was one of our children's pastors, and one day she was driving to work. She works with Alvin, uh, uh, Lane's brother-in-law. He's one of our pastors. And, and she hit some black ice in Richmond, one of the suburbs of Vancouver, coming to work. Her car begin, begins to spin out of control, and she, she careens, her car careens into a, a, uh, one of these concrete poles. She, she actually thinks she's going to die. Uh, she doesn't die, but she sustains a very serious concussion. And her physician will later say to her, in order for your brain to really heal, you need to experience deep REM sleep. REM and then the cycle of non-REM sleep where you're dreaming, Without that deeper level of sleep, your brain will not heal. And without a deeper level of soul rest, our souls won't fully be restored, nor will they fully heal. And part of the pathway to this healing, this is especially important for those of us that are driven and ambitious, is to embrace the gift of Sabbath, which tells us that we don't live just by the sweat of our brow, but by the grace of manna that falls all around us. So Sabbath is the day to play, but it's also the day to pray, to worship, to, to recognize that our existence is being carried by another ultimately. Uh, are you familiar with the movie Chariots of Fire? How many of you have seen it? So, okay, about half of you, a little more than half. So it's one of my favorite films. As you probably know, it's based on the true story of two runners named Eric Little from Scotland and... and uh, Harold Abrahams from England. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Eric Little's uh, story. Eric Little, as you may know, was actually born in China. He was the uh, son of missionaries, and when he was, I guess, six or seven years old, his parents shipped him off to England, back, back to the UK, and he enrolled at this very modest uh, boarding school for missionary kids. Um, very humble facilities, but he loved sports. He played rugby. He was, you know, not, uh, you know, like a huge guy, but loved rugby, and he also liked running track. 
When Eric was 18 years old, he graduated and he was admitted to Edinburgh University in Scotland studying chemistry. And one day he's just walking around campus and he bumps into someone and the person says, um, are, you, are you Eric Little by any chance? And at the time, Eric Little was not famous, but this person knew who he was. And, and Eric says, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm Eric. And the person said, I hear that you were a good runner in high school. Do you want to come and run with a track team sometime? And Eric was like, oh, no, no, no. I, I don't have time for track. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on my chemistry studies. I want to be a missionary one day in China. It's not a priority for me. But so the, the guy says, well, you know, I mean, you don't have to join the track team. You can just run from time to time as a break for your studies. And Eric thought, well, eh, sounds reasonable enough. So he started running from time to time with the, 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 the track team at Edinburgh. Within a few months, he was being recruited for the Olympic team. And about six months later, he was considered amazingly, I mean, Caucasian person, to be the odds-on favorite to win the gold medal at the 1924 Paris Olympic Games. But as you know, if you've seen the film or read his biography, the qualifying heats for the 100 meters fell on a Sunday. And in Eric Little's you know, Presbyterian culture of Scotland at the time, people believed the only day you could honor the Sabbath was on a Sunday. So Eric pulls out, and he's accused of being unpatriotic. And he says, God knows I love my country, but I can't violate my conscience. What happens? One of his teammates who's running in the 400 meter race has won a medal already, a silver, uh, Lord Lindsay. And he says, Eric, I've got my medal. I've run my race. Why don't you take my place in the 400? I guess the Olympics were a lot more simple back then. <laughs> and this was not Eric's race at all, but he just wanted to compete uh, and participate. And so he said, yeah, I'd love to. And so when he draws the straw for the final, he draws the worst possible lane, the outside lane, where you can't see anyone behind you. But he doesn't care. He just, he just wants to participate. And he's about to get into his crouch to start. And a masseuse, an American masseuse, approaches him with a piece of paper in hand, puts it in Eric's hand, he opens it up, and it's a verse of scripture from 1 Samuel that simply says, he who honors me, I will honor. So Eric holds it in his hand, gets into his crouch, a gun goes off, and he comes out like a bullet. It's like he's trying to run the 100 meters, and he has a few friends in the stands that just bury their face in their hands, and they think, this is, this is a big mistake. Eric is a 100-meter runner. He thinks this is the 100. He's just going to burn out and totally embarrass himself and finish dead last by a long shot. But for some reason, Eric is able to keep up that pace at 200 meters and 300 meters. And it's just really bad form, you know? Um, and then the world record holders, for some reason, from Switzerland, trips and falls. And Eric crosses the finish line first, not only winning the gold medal, but shattering the existing world record. And afterwards, a journalist approaches him and says, Eric, we know that you're a devout Christian. Do you think God gave you the gold medal? Eric paused and he said, I sought to honor God, but just because I tried to please God, the Almighty is under no obligation to give me first in any of this world's contests. So no prosperity gospel whatsoever. And whether Eric won the gold or not, whether he got to participate in the Olympics or not, in one sense, it didn't matter that much to him because whenever he ran, whether he was winning or losing, he said, I feel God's pleasure. So that's one approach, right? But then Harold Abrahams, also featured in the movie, the runner from Great Britain, very tense, very driven. And just before the 100-meter 
final. He, I'm sure he's thankful that Eric is not in the race. Uh, but he confides to his teammate, Aubrey Montesquieu, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. I don't even know what I'm pursuing, but I'm forever in pursuit. And the sad thing is that many of us identify more with Harold Abrahams than we do with Eric Little. We feel like we're forever in pursuit of something and we don't even know what we're chasing. We feel like we have to run and succeed in our school or our work or our parenting or whatever it is to validate our existence, to justify our place on the planet. And when we embrace the gift of Sabbath, this gift that we can't afford to refuse, part of what the gift tells us is that we don't need to stamp existence on the ghost of our existence. That we don't need to live just by the sweat of our brow, but we can live by the grace of manna that falls all around us. That we don't need to be the guy. We just need to be the son. We don't need to be the girl. We just need to be the daughter. And so, do you hear the voice of Jesus calling you to him and saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. To quote Krista, you are people who live with an intention, a holy ambition that is God-given. Uh, the desire to do something great and significant for you is likely birthed from God. But in the midst of that, God also wants you to have this gift of Sabbath. And so in your hearts, would you hear the voice of Jesus calling you and saying, if you're tired <laughs> through Sabbath, will you come away with me and recover your life? Jesus says, I won't put anything ill-fitting on you. I will show you the unforced rhythms of grace so you can live light and free in body and in soul. May you know this gift of Jesus, who is your Sabbath. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.